0: Hey, good morning. good morning. This is your first time with us. My name is Andrew. I'm the preaching pastor for Anchor Church. You can go ahead and have a seat. Uh, I will pray for us and we will dig back into 1 Peter. Uh, King Jesus, this is your day and we are your people. Uh, we come to your word and to your text uh, uh, knowing that we're, we're not just coming to some document or just some book, but we are coming to hear your voice. We're coming to hear what you have for us. And specifically today, we're coming to look at the cross and see how your body broken and blood shed for us affects the rest of our lives. How the the, the wake of the reality that you, Jesus, came to die for us so that we could live uh, shapes us into a different kind of people who are formed in this good news as forgiven, blood-bought sinner saints, Uh, as people who are transformed by your grace and your kindness in our lives. Uh, Help us to see this. Help us to see the text and the reality of your word, the Bible, uh, flip on its head how the world does power. To flip on its head how we walk and do life in the world. And may we see this so founded in your love for us and our response to you and to your cross in the love for others and the trust that we now have in you, Jesus. Lord Jesus, move in our lives today. Help us. Be gracious to me as I open up this text. As I open up your word, uh, I am broken, I am fallen, I am just a human being, but your text, your word, your Bible is defined. And so whatever's just of me may be forgotten, but the things are of you, may they, they shine in our hearts, and may, may they help us understand who you are and who we are because of you better. Jesus, we love you so much. Uh, we pray these things for your glory and for our joy, and in your name, uh, Jesus Christ, amen. So we're in First Peter Uh, We're actually going to pick it up in 21 where we left off last week. This is sort of the second part of last week's sermon. We didn't have enough time to get to all of the things that Peter was after. So we'll start up there. If you don't have a Bible, we have some on the table over there. Feel free to grab one. Um, Today we're going to continue looking how the cross of Jesus affects the conduct of our lives. uh, And to have a cross-centered life means that our life formed in the gospel looks radically different than the lives of those around us. And today uh, Peter's going to wander into very delicate territory talking about Wives, specifically those married to uh, non-Christian husbands and Christian husbands as they love their wives. Uh, Now what we need to see, uh, and this is always the challenge of the text, right? This is always the challenge of taking a paragraph every week uh, is that, and I said this a couple weeks ago, but I'm feeling it especially intensely with Peter's letter here. Uh, You don't come to a show, the band plays one song and says, okay, we'll see you next week. We'll play play another song for the record next week, and, and then you can come on back. Uh, no one goes to Beethoven. We'll hear four lines at the symphony, and then we'll come back next week. Uh, Peter has written a letter, and this letter would have been opened and read in its entirety by the church who received it. And so if we just start in verse 1 of chapter 3, we miss some of this amazing stuff he said last week. So we're actually going to start up in 21, which I preached last week. But we need to see that everything he's after here. Last week he talked about what it is to be under the government and what it is uh, to be a slave in the first century and and how to deal with that if you're in an unjust and hard situation. Uh, And here we go, starting in 21. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly, which is God the Father. He himself, he did it, right? He bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. Invoking uh, Isaiah there. For you were straying like sheep but have now returned to the Shepherd, capital S, and Overseer, capital O, the Shepherd and the Overseer of your souls. And so as we begin to unpack these implications, this is what should be on our mind, that the cross of Jesus Christ is, is what he's writing in the wake of in the rest of three. And now this is important because we're gonna talk about wives and husbands. And, and, and I think we live in a time and a place where, I mean, we could talk about how unpopular this is in, in our time and place, but I think that will show itself For itself. The text can speak for itself on that and yet offer something radically different and radically fresh to the world in which we live. Uh, But what I think is important here is that if I had a dollar for every time I heard someone say, Well, I'm a Christian, but I'm not that kind of a Christian. Have you ever heard this phrase before? I'm a Christian, but I'm not that kind of a Christian. I've heard at least in Seattle, a great deal. And usually when people say that, what they mean by that is, well, yes, I'm into Jesus, I like Jesus, uh, but I don't do everything he says, I don't believe everything he says, and if something he says or his word says contradicts with what our society is doing presently, I'll go with society rather than Jesus. Now, I'm reading into the subtext, but that's what it means. Well, I'm a Christian, but I don't believe in that old, antiquated stuff. I'm progressive. I know things, right? I've had a class. I went to community college. I know what's up. I've been to university. I had high school or some other thing. I have the Discovery Channel. I don't. It's awesome. I love the Discovery Channel, but I digress. But when we say that, we really mean I'm not I'm not what you don't like about Jesus. I'm just the stuff you do like about Jesus. Because it turns out, if you ask the average person, what do you think about Jesus, they'd say, I like Jesus. He was a cool guy. He wore Birkenstocks and he hung out and he just kind of wandered around and he, you know, wore flowy clothes and was nice to people, right? That's Jesus. Or even, and we'll we'll address this. We're going to do Romans in the fall and we'll do a seminar in October, I think, on Paul and justification because so many people say this phrase. Well, Maybe maybe it's just the circles I run. Maybe it's the people I've heard say this. But I've heard so many people say things like, well, I like what Jesus has to say. I, I don't really like Paul. Paul. Paul, I don't like Paul. He's weird. He tells people what to do. He's cranky. He's short. I don't like Paul. Um, here's the problem with that. Usually when someone says, I like the Gospels, but not Paul, you know what I ask them? Have you read the Gospels? Well, no, but I know what they say. Jesus tells everybody to love everybody and that everything's cool. No. <laughs> No, the sign of love is not just being cool with everybody in the Gospels. The sign of love is Jesus showing everyone they're sinners and dying in their place so that they can live. To, come in, to pay the price for you and for me in our wreckedness, in our jacked-upness, in our rebellion, in our brokenness, and dying on the cross so that we can be completely forgiven for all of our sins, not because of anything we have done, but everything He has done, and that we can live and be Christians and know God and have full access to God through the blood of Jesus that the Holy Spirit comes to dwell inside of us and we can live a whole new radical life because of Him. I am a sinner. He is the Savior. That is the message of the Gospels. What's the message of Paul? There's a Savior. His name is Jesus. We are sinners. We need him. Guess what? It's the same message. And so as we look at this and we look at that message and we look at this truth, we need to see how does the cross of Jesus change how we live? And just picking up on that last paragraph we looked at, at the end of the day, this means that we can trust and we can know regardless of high waters, regardless of the foundation moving out from under us, regardless of life situation or whatever we may face, that Jesus is the king and that he's got it. No matter how dark or how hard or how messed up you are or your situation is, Jesus has it. And so as we approach this, we need to do something here. As we approach chapter 3, verses 1 through 7, that's what we're looking at today. We have to look at a couple of things. And one, we have to understand who he's talking to and the context that he's talking in. Uh, The beautiful thing about the New Testament, and the Old Testament for that matter, uh, is that it's a place where theology, understanding who God is and how we live in the wake of who God is, and history meet. They're both. It's historical. This is a historical document. Peter was a real guy dealing with real stuff. That's good news for us because we're real people dealing with real stuff. Pete had problems. You have problems. Pete needed Jesus. You need Jesus. That's helpful. But in that historical context of this letter he's writing, we actually get theology, right? Not just historical context, but we learn about the historical person, Jesus. God himself who interrupted history and came into history as a human being to save. So we have to hear and we have to stop and look at what he's talking about as we talk about these wives and these husbands. Because he's going to specifically talk about wives of non-Christian Husbands and husbands of Christian wives. Christian husbands, Christian wives. Excuse me. And and we're going to look at how these two marriages one is a Christian marriage, one is a marriage where there's a non Christian husband and a Christian wife how these are played out in the wake of the cross of Jesus Christ. This would have been very important. In the first century, uh, wives of non believing husbands tended to become Christians at a much more rapid clip than husbands. So this is what would have been a real problem for Peter. He would have had real women who he can really attach a face and idea to uh, in these churches that he's writing to in Asia Minor, particularly in Antioch and Galatia where he had been. He knows these people. And so he knows these people who have these non-Christian husbands, these Christian wives with these non-Christian. And he, he, he's got people in mind. Now, it's kind of hypothetical as he's talking. He doesn't say, hey, remember Susie Q in Galatia. But, but he's got real people who have a real problem. And it's a real deal. He's a real pastor talking to real people. And as we do this, we have to remember a couple of things. And we'll talk about it in a second. Roman marriage or non-Christian marriage and Christian marriage are two radically different things in the first century. And I, and I think that that's probably true today as well. Um, in addition to that, uh, Peter, and we said this yesterday when we talked about, or last Sunday when we talked about slaves, Peter's a marginalized person, right? He's, he's not the Pope, Right? Don't reimagine Peter uh, as something more than he's not. He, he's a guy. He's a leader in the first century church, absolutely. Uh, he's probably involved in the planting of some of these churches. He's very influential. He knew Jesus, yes, well, from all these things all day long. But you also have to remember this is a marginalized cat. Even if he had never met Jesus, even if he had never been uh, disciple Peter, he was just a Galilean fisherman uh, living was always in a in a changing dynamic in the first uh, you know kind of first second century area who's in charge now who's who's in charge of Israel now not Peter not Galilean fishermen Romans you know Pontius Pilate whoever right so he's a marginalized guy writing to marginalized people we have to remember that he's not a person in power writing to people who don't have power he's a person without power writing to people who don't have power okay verse one Likewise, in wake of what we just read, likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be one without a word, but by the conduct of their wives. So he's talking about then this woman, you know, he kind, of, kind of this imaginary case study, kind of like with the slaves and whatnot that we saw last week. So this is a woman who loves Jesus, who's living with a husband who doesn't. He's a pagan, Roman, Hellenistic first century person and the rules of marriage outside of the church and inside of the church are differently, work differently and are different. So the idea of Christian marriage and how the Bible handles it is is so revolutionary in the first century and the things of Jesus ultimately are so revolutionary uh, that they almost don't make sense. They don't compute. Okay. The verse we start with, with our elder candidates, the place we start with someone who wants to be a leader in this church, is Mark 10, 45. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. At the core of what it means to be a pastor and ultimately, as we'll talk in a second about husband, to be a leader in a Christian church, to be a leader that is a Christian in this role means to be someone who gives of your life so other people can thrive in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Christian leadership is bleeding out and dying so other people can know Jesus more deeply and passionately. It is of giving of yourself and everything you have so that other people know him more. We live in a world, I don't know, where a pastor's a CEO or something, right? That's the expectation. Jesus is no CEO, right? Jesus goes to the cross and dies. There's no green room at Golgotha. He goes to the cross and he bleeds out and dies to save sinners. And he says, that is your example. That is your example. And the Bible calls husbands to be leaders. And this is our example. Bleeding and dying. Right? People love Ephesians to say, you know, husbands love your wives as Christ loves the church, giving himself for her. This means dying for her. And so we can say, yeah, that means I will take a bullet for my wife if an intruder comes into my home and I've got the baseball bat and he's got the gun, I'll take the bullet. Yay, good for me. Good job, husband. That's not just what Jesus did. He gave and he gave and he gave and he gave of himself for the church who didn't deserve it. If Jesus is the example for husband and the church is the example of bride, Jesus sets aside his divine rights, Philippians 2, enters into human history, takes on the form of a servant, and ultimately dies. To be a Christian husband then, and we'll get to how kind of this works out a little more in verse seven, means an exemplary Christian husband is one who leads his wife and his family by dying, by giving everything he has so that his bride would thrive in the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's not just, hey, I put food on the table. Hey, I showed up to something. I was there, right? I need a nap. Uh, it's not, I'm home, give me my pipe and my slippers and male chauvinism. It's bleeding and dying as a servant so that your bride would thrive in the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is what it is to be a leader in a Christian marriage. That is what it is to be a husband. Now, he's writing to women who are in a church, presumably where there are men who are doing that to their wonderful brides, and they have this guy, who doesn't love Jesus and doesn't believe in that view of marriage and in fact uh, I mean the Roman view of marriage is horrible so aristocrats uh, were not allowed to have sexual immorality or impropriety with people other than the wife if they were aristocrats if they were below their social standing however all bets are off it's okay different social standing doesn't count what? that's not fidelity right? Christian husbands are being called to fidelity and to service. And these ideas are so foreign, as we see in 7, because as far as the Bible's concerned, men and women are equal, co-heirs in Christ with their husbands, part of the family of God together. Aristotle, everybody loves Aristotle, right? You can say fancy words like Aristotelian. Well, you know, the Aristotelian thinking here is this and blah, 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 blah. I sounded smart. I said Aristotle, and you were so impressed that I said Aristotelian that when I said blah, 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 you didn't hear anything I said. Just Aristotelian. (laughs) So Aristotle was pro-slavery, and he thought women were less human than men. Thank you, Aristotle. That's horrible, right? It's pervasive in the Greek and Roman world. This is the situation that these people are in. They're seen as less than. And he says crazy stuff then. So we're dealing with people who are living in an unjust world and dealing with unjust stuff. And where is the power to deal with this lack of justice? It's in the cross. Jesus was not treated justly. He wasn't. In fact, he's the only person who didn't get what he deserved. Right? He's the only person who was not a sinner. He is the only innocent man who ever lived and died a criminal's death. He is the king of the Jews. He's the king of Israel. And he's mocked as the King of Israel, the irony, the pain. And he goes to the cross, where I deserve to be. I am a sinner. I'm saved by grace. What do I deserve? I deserve death. I'm an insurrectionist. I've made a run for the throne. I've tried to take God's place in the center of my universe, at least, if not elsewhere. Wrong actions, rebellion, doing what I want to do, doing how I want to do it. I've also done it by doing good things. I've done good things so people say, that guy is awesome. Yay, throw him a parade. Excuse me. As a non-Christian, that was my life. Yes, you know, I was a hedonist and I did what I wanted. And it was Bellingham, it was Seattle. And, you know, as long as you're not hurting anybody else, you can do whatever you want to do. But my righteousness didn't come from doing whatever I wanted to do. My righteousness came from being a good person, or so I thought. And when I was being a good person, I said, I don't need you, God. I can get up to you fine on my own. That's what we do. Throw me a parade. I gave somebody a coat. I gave somebody some food. I was nice to somebody. Throw me a parade. Good karma all day long. And in so doing, I tried to displace God from his right place in the center of the universe. I'm fine, and I don't need you. Jesus died for that sinner to be saved and to be made new and to be made whole and to be made right. I didn't earn it. I didn't deserve it. I was given it as a gift. And the gift came through the only innocent man, God himself, dying on the cross for my sins. And not just to pay the price for my sins, but so that I could live. I'm alive. I'm a real boy. You know? We're made real. We're made alive. We're made to be who God actually created us to be in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so as we're dealt with unjustly, we don't say no fair. And this is the problem with the health and wealth heresy. If you love Jesus, it will go well for you. You will have a big house and a nice car and lots of money and social standing and everyone will love you just like they love Jesus when he died on that cross without anything. They took his clothes and gambled for them. Good night. He doesn't say you're going to have a big, nice house on earth. He said, the way they treated me is the way they're going to treat you. I'm not sure where that verse goes in a health and wealth system. I'm not sure where that finds itself in a systematic theology of health and wealth. But the reality is, he says, it's going to go for you the way it went for me. It's going to go for you the way that it went for me. This is what it is to follow Jesus. To tell people it's going to be happy and nice and going to be healthy and wealthy is a lie. Here's what it is. You will know the God of the universe forever through his cross, through his burial, and his resurrection, and you might lose absolutely everything on earth and in him gain absolutely everything in eternity. Even today. Even today, alive on earth, if they take everything from you and you still have Jesus, you have more than someone who has everything and know Jesus. Period. Period. They can take it all away on planet Earth and you still have Jesus. They just can't see that you've got more. They just don't know it. And Peter, through this woman's witness, wants their husbands to know it. This is crazy. This is crazy and beautiful. This is otherworldly stuff. I would also say, as an aside, this is not a justification for you just have to be a nice person until somebody asks you what's different about your life. Yes, be a good person. Yes, be a godly person. And yes, someone may actually be freaked out by your other-centered love and ask you, but you're given clear scriptural commandments to carry the gospel of Jesus Christ to people who have never heard it. Jesus saves sinners from death to life and he'll save you too right now, right here, period. We want to be charming. We want to be winsome. We want to be kind. Good timing even helps if we can swing it, right? Timing counts if you can swing it. Have you ever seen a four-year-old try and tell a joke with bad timing? Sometimes it works. Sometimes they still get a laugh. You're in the elevator with a guy. You got 30 seconds. Where do you go to church? You know, Jesus saves, whatever. Well, you know, you really got to build a relationship with them first and, and, and you know, have them over for dinner or something before you tell them that Jesus saves sinners. Or they're just going to think you're a weirdo. You think a man, a Galilean peasant preacher who is God, rose from the dead 2,000 years ago to save your sins and you're going to live with him forever. You're already a weirdo. Good night. I'm not saying track bomb people. I'm not saying be weird. I'm saying if you have even the slightest shot, take the shot. Take the shot. I know a guy who was in Campus Crusade literally read the four spiritual laws to a guy on the bus. English was a second language even, right? He's great. I mean, he's, his English is a lot better than my. He was Japanese. I don't have any Japanese except for counting. So I don't even mean to demean him. His, his English was awesome. But he literally sat on the bus and like read a guy the four spiritual loss. By the time they got off the bus, the guy said, I want to know this Jesus. I want to love him. I want to find a church. I want to get involved. I want to do it. He took a shot. It's Seattle. You take a shot, honestly, you see the guy in the, in the elevator next to you, hey, man, have you gone to church? And all they're going to do is just keep looking straight forward. They're not even going to talk to you. <laughs> it's awkward for everybody, but they're not going to say anything, so Hey. Take the shot. Take the shot. I don't know. So that's not what he's saying here. The presumption is that they know that their wives are Christians. And he's calling these women to live in a radically different way than their their Greco-Roman peers. So he says here, that they may be one without a word, uh, that they, they may be one with a word by the conduct of their wives. When they see your respectful and pure conduct. Verse 3. So he's going to give an example of this. He's giving an example of godliness. Uh, do not let your adorning be external. The braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry. People like to do those things today. It's not saying don't braid your hair. It's not saying if your wedding ring's made out of gold, try again. Uh, This is the way that in the first century they are showy. This is why I awkwardly look down and make sure I don't say anything. You might be wearing gold. You might have some braids in here. I don't know, right? He's not after the braids. He's not after the gold. It's the showiness of their life. He's after their immodesty, and even if their immodesty isn't in the obvious ways we would think, they're trying to be flashy and showy and say, "Hey look over here!" That's, that's what he's after. I'll, I'll keep going. I'll we'll unpack this for a second. But let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart, with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit which in God's sight is very precious. Let the thing that's true of you through the cross of Jesus Christ a changed life. Shine through who you are to them and be different. What's he after, right? Modesty. So immodesty is when we do anything. This is men and women. Immodesty is where we do anything, whatever it may be, to grab attention, to get glory over here. I'm awesome, look at me. In such a way that's to put, you know, says the guy with lights on his face standing on a stage, right? (laughs) Awkward day for me. Sometimes you've just got to call it out, right? But if the point is to draw the attention to self, self-glorification, for everyone to think that person is awesome for whatever reason rather than Jesus. So, so this is about really doing the Jesus dog walk. It's deferring to Jesus. It's, it's doing things that push the attention back on to Jesus. It's, it's showing what Jesus has done. This is, this, is, this is a call to modesty. But But it's not just... Modesty in the, the way we would obviously think about it. And of course it means the way we would obviously think about it. But I mean, we live in 2015. It's fast fashion. You don't, like people don't buy clothes. You mail order clothes so you can send them back next month because they're not cool already in a month. Right? You get a box of clothes. They have these for men and women. I'm not picking on anybody here. You get your clothes. You wear them for a month. You send them back. Why? Fast fashion. Let's move it. Look over here. Oh, this is last week's thing. Oh crud! Last week's flannel. I need next week's flannel. Quick! Somebody give me next week's flannel. That's what it'd be like in my house if I was into this kind of thing. Somebody send me next week's flannel ASAP. Right. He's, but he, what he's ultimately and fundamentally calling these women, and I think all of us to ultimately is the deobjectification of self. This is true in Roman society. It is true in Seattle in 2012. We turn ourselves into objects. We dehumanize ourselves or allow someone to dehumanize us for attention, for the draw. And what he's saying is this is what it is to be really human. That you're not what you do, You're who you are because of the cross of Jesus Christ. You're not about self-determination. You're about being determined and defined by Jesus and his gospel. That's freedom. All of a sudden, if I am free to not be concerned what other people think about me, because of the things that I do or the way that I look, but I am defined by the fact that Jesus has saved me from my sins and I belong to Him and there's nothing I can do to earn it. I am His. I am in His hands and my life is defined by His grace and His mercy and my drive in my life to enjoy Him, to glorify Him, and to make His name known. That changes absolutely everything if the thing that defines my life is the cross and the resurrection of Jesus, I have a new boldness in life because I don't care what other people think. Right? One of the craziest things I ever heard anyone say, a pastor shared the story of when when his kid, who wanted to become a missionary, had a parent who wasn't a Christian, came to him and said, if my kid dies on the mission field, I'm going to kill you. He looked him right in the eyes and said, make my day. Because he wasn't going to back down because he knows who's the king. He knows who's the king. But let your adoring be the hidden person of the heart. I mean, how much do we want this? How much do we actually just want people to like us and know us because who we actually are? You ever heard that before? I mean, you want to talk about not dropping the hockey puck here. That was the driving factor in my life and almost absolutely everyone I ever knew when I was not a Christian. We wanted to be ourselves. We wanted to be different, and we wanted someone to like us because we were different, and we were ourselves. And, of course, we all ended up looking exactly the same as we did that. And why in Bellingham in the early 2000s everyone needed a hoodie, some Dickies jeans, and a Minor Threat t-shirt, I do not know. (laughs) But we wanted people to like us in spite of our Minor Threat t-shirt, not because of it, at the core. This is the reality of Jesus. He knows every horrible thing you've ever done against him. Died on the cross to save you, to make us his own to make you his own, and you're so radically accepted through the cross of Jesus that no human being can reject you in a way that is equal to the acceptance you have from this God who paid the price for your sins, which, by the way, you committed against him. So he's calling these women not to get what they're trying to get out of their house or what they're doing by doing it the world's way, by by doing power grabs or secret moves or whatever it might be in this household that they're in, in this sort of Asia Minor, first century scene. What does he call them to? Trust Jesus be godly. Trust Jesus and let your conduct be reflected by the gospel. Your conduct be reflective of the gospel. But let your adorning, the thing that makes you awesome, be the hidden person of the heart The human person always, so Peter's Semitic, heart is always not just ba-bum, 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 or I heart this person, or I heart sushi, or whatever that thing is. uh, But when he says heart, he thinks this is the psyche, this is the human person, this is the who you really are. But let your adoring be the hidden person of the heart with imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this, now again, we have to do context here. This one's hard for us in Seattle. I'll, I'll tell you why this one's hard for us in Seattle, and then I'll read it. And maybe you might resonate with this. Growing up, my parents never made me say, Mr. And this maybe you too. And I, we don't do this with our kids either. But, but really, it was really obvious to me. I was never introduced to anyone as a child as Mr. So-and-so. And my dad loved the joke when someone said, Mr. Pack. He'd say, Mr. Pack is my dad. Which, and I say that when he's around, because I think it's funny. Um, We don't do titles in Seattle. We don't like Mister, we don't like Mrs. we don't like Miss, uh, we don't like Sir, we don't like Sir or Ma'am, woo! Get out of town with that thing. You're from Georgia, you call people Sir, right? Yes, Sir. Maybe, I don't know, Ask somebody from Georgia. Maybe Louisiana, right? There are places where it's, yes sir, yes ma'am, yes ma'am, yes sir. Have I ever heard a child ever say that in the uh, great state of Washington? No. No, I haven't. So what we're about to hear really is going to ruffle our feathers, I think, particularly as Seattleites. But I'll read it, and then we'll unpack it. So it says this. For this is how the holy women... So, and I need you to see this. Before we even get to the other stuff, he's showing deference to the holy women. He's honoring them and thinking they're awesome. Okay? For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves... By submitting to their own husbands as Sarah obeyed Abraham or listened to Abraham or, or, or didn't try and do the world's things. Which, of course, when you read Genesis, you're like, well, sometimes she sure as heck did. Um, but so did he, right? I mean, so did he. Oh, that's my sister. No. What do you mean that's my sister? Twice. To Pharaoh and Abimelech. And you're like, what are you talking about? Read Genesis. I don't have time to unpack it. It's right all there. He did stupid stuff. His kids then did stupid stuff. His nephew does stupid stuff. Genesis has a lot of people, honestly, doing a lot of really stupid stuff and God doing amazing things with stupid people doing stupid stuff. Honestly, you read Genesis, you're like, oh, good night. How's this whole thing going to work? Oh, yeah, God's sovereign hand. That's how it's going to work out. Oh, you, I mean, you read it and you're like, there's another Abimelech and it's his kid. And you're like, oh, don't, don't, no. Have you ever just... I'll just go off on Genesis for just 30 seconds that I don't have. <laughs> if you've never read Genesis cover to cover in sort of a, a straightforward way, you do it and you just try and tune out what you know a little bit. Uh, you know, don't, you know, Jesus is coming, Jesus is coming. Don't tune that out. And don't tune out what's coming. But, but instead you just read it and you're like, wait, Isaac met an Abimelech? Oh, he's not going to do the thing with his wife again, is he? Oh, man, he learned that from his dad. That was stupid. It didn't go well for his dad either, twice. And he does it. Schmuck. <laughs> I digress. But Sarah on her best days, right? Abraham on his best days. They're not doing the worldly things to run their marriage. On their best days, they're doing something different. And Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. Again, Lord, eh, uh, kurios is the word kurios in Greek, sir. That's weird for us, right? If I was preaching somewhere in the middle of Louisiana today, it's like, it's like someone saying, sir. Oh, 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 all right, okay, well, it's weird. Wife well, calm, him sir, but there's cultural stuff that we have to cross and bridge here. But deference, respect, kindness. And you are our children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Now, here's something fascinating. Here's something fascinating. He's not calling these women to be Roman women to their Roman husbands. He's calling them to be Christian women with their Roman husbands. Because Romans, this is horrific, by the way. Sometimes you get something and you're like, man, i got to say it. But it's even horrific to say. In, In first century Roman culture, and this lets you know how hard of a situation these women are in. In first century Roman culture, it was considered a good thing for a wife to fear her husband. To fear her husband. That was the sign of a good marriage in Roman society, fear. This is, this is actually, like, we, we kind of read this, so, yeah, don't fear anything, yeah, sure, make my day. You just told the story. Like I said, make my day. That's awesome. No, no, this is actually very polemic. This is like bedstone corner idea in the, in the first century that, that wives would, I mean, this is horrible. Ah, it's horrible. Horrible that wives would fear their husbands. But what does he say? Do not fear anything that is frightening. Why can we not fear anything that is frightening? Well, but continue trusting self to him who judges justly. Now, what I don't think that Peter's calling them to, I mean, it's like if we were dealing with this today, like, hey, he's not saying don't call the cops if something illegal is happening, right? He's not saying put up with abuse or nastiness. He's saying you're in this marriage and you have to deal with it in the ways of its culture and its time. And we even see that in the first, second century. Uh, We see Christian women. There's one. I read one account this week of a woman, a Christian woman. Uh, Her husband was doing the infidelity thing because he was aristocratic and he was committing sexual immorality against him. And as a Christian woman, she said, okay, I have actual grounds for divorce. And she divorced him. Then he outs her as a Christian. She goes to jail. Uh, But the church got behind her on that. The church got behind her on that. Um, You know, Likewise, I mean, this is the difference, right? In, in a Christian community, you have a congregation. This, these women don't have the congregation to appeal to. Uh, in a Christian context in the first century, if a husband's not laying his down life down for his wife and leading her in this way of pouring his life out that she might thrive in the gospel, that woman can actually appeal to the church. And that woman can actually appeal to the church what's going on. And, and today, of course, we not only can appeal to the church, but... Things are horrible. We can appeal to the law, too. Just so we're clear on, on those boundaries there. Uh, but these are women who don't have that appeal. They're, they're seen as less human by their husbands and by society. They don't have an appeals process. At least within the context of the church, a guy's being a schmuck. The wife can actually go to the church and the congregation. The congregation can say, Hey, you, knock that off. That's what Ephesians says. Well, if they had a... I mean, we got to be technical if it's first century. If they didn't get the letter, but they know what the letter, the content of the letter, how they're to act in the church... Okay. Now, verse 7's interesting. Because verse 7 is an aside. Now, this aside that he has in verse 7 would have, like, had people tear their hair out and freak out in the first century. And what's interesting here is this aside actually could do the same thing in 2015, but for different reasons. And, in fact, the exact opposite reasons are the reasons why it might make people freak out in 2015. So he says this, likewise, husbands. But again, don't miss that this is rooted back in the cross. We do power different. We do leadership different. We do relationships different. Because the God that we worship, is the God who came and took on human flesh and died in our place for our sins, rose from the dead, he came and served not to be served. So, so even see that. All these things are, are hearkening back to this reality of the cross. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way. Showing honor to the woman. That is a foreign concept in the first century. Showing honor, particularly in the Greco-Roman world. <clears throat> Showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel. That's the word we don't like. Two words we don't like. Since they are heirs with you. Now this is the thing that they would have freaked out about. This, this thing that they are about to say. He's about to say people would have lost their minds. Aristotle, though he's dead when this is written. Aristotle, and who thought like him. Hates what he's about to say. Since they are heirs with you of the grace of life so that your prayers may not be hindered. So what did he just say? He just said men and women are equal. First century, this is crazy town. Or as my mom told me on the phone the other day, it's cray-cray. I don't know that my mom's using it now. So if you use that one, you have to stop using it because my mom learned it on Facebook. And so I'm not on Facebook, so she calls me and tells me what's happening on Facebook with my family and words like cray-cray. I'm like, where did you, Mom? Come on, Mom. Cray-cray. But I digress. But he just said they're equal. Paul does this too. In Romans 8, he says, your sons, and you read that you're like, well, why didn't he say sons and daughters? Well he could have, and he does other places. He says the word wios. He could use the word adelphoi, could he use the word technon, could have used the word, word, word Padia, children, brothers and sisters, he could have said all those things. But he said sons. Why does he say sons? Sons get inheritance. Sons count as people. So what does Paul think happened at the cross of Jesus Christ and in the people of God and the way God sees people and really rooted in creation in and of itself is that human beings are all image bearers of God, regardless of their social standing or status worthy of dignity and respect and are equal in the eyes of God through the cross of Jesus Christ. This is the truth, right? First century, this is crazy. First century, people are freaking out. This is upsetting social order, Peter. You gotta chill out, man. This is very strong. And, and, I, and you just gotta, you gotta pick that up. This is strong stuff. Now, where. Where this kind of flies in the face of where we're at is he says, and men and women are different. Men and women are not the same. They are different. Now, in our our society, if everything can't be homogeneous, then it's not equal. We've confused and conflated homogeneous stuff with equality. It has to be all the same or it's different. The Bible says, no, 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 no. God created complementary. You see this in Genesis. Genesis 1. Created the heavens and the earth. He created the sun and the moon. He created the day and the night. He created the land and the sea. It happens again and again and again, 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 and again, again through that first chapter, this and then this, and this and then this, and the first day. Or day one, depending how you want to roll with it, right? He created the heavens and the earth. He created them male and he created them female. And they're equal. Now here's the amazing thing about this, and where I think this is really actually countercultural. What makes them equal is not how they are built, nor what they do. It's that they're people. By default, from who they are is what makes them equal. You know, we kind of have this thing where, well, I'm not really equal to you unless I can run as far as, so you and me get in a race, and you're better than me because you outraced me in the race, you win, right? Don't race me, I've got boat shoes, they'll fall off, and everyone will know you're faster than me. I can talk really fast though, which makes people feel like I'm fast. Not fast, just fast talking sometimes, micro machines. <laughs> and old too, because. <laughs> micro machines? What are you talking about? This guy, he talked fast, micro machines, little cars, fast talking guy. Old and slow, equal with young and fast, right? Not because I'm fast. Not because I'm young, because I belong to Jesus. He roots their equality in the cross, not in what they can do. And in fact, wants them to do power differently. Okay, you're a dude, and you're stronger than she is. You're bigger than she is. You can be louder than she is. You can be crazier than she can. You don't use that to leverage power in the relationship and in the marriage. You serve, you die, you pour it out. You're quicker, you're fast. Now, and this is just in a relationship, man or woman. This is if someone in a relationship, the man or the woman, is quicker or faster, has better logic or better rhetoric, or is punchier, or has a longer memory, and you're like, Micro machines? What's a micro machine? I don't remember micro machines, right? Maybe they have a better memory. Whatever it is, you don't take the things that you have, your abilities, and leverage them over the other person. You're you're in the practice of, of deferring to each other, respecting each other, and as a team, and as one, pushing the agenda of your family and of your marriage forward together as the husband's bleeding out and dying so that his wife might thrive in the gospel. The aim is not how you can get a better bass boat or more time playing video games. The aim is how you as the husband can lead your family by dying to yourself and living to Christ and pouring out everything you absolutely have so that your wife can thrive in the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is your job, husbands. That is what leadership is. To defer and to serve and to continually put your priorities aside so that your wife can thrive. And not just thrive, but thrive in the gospel of Jesus Christ as his disciple. Even if you could win a push-up competition, right? He's not trying to say rude things about women when he says these two words. The weaker vessel. Uh, think... A nice vase versus a plastic craftsman toolbox. Your Jeep. Vase. Plastic. I don't treat my toolbox very nice. In fact, I try and mess it up because I have to sit at my desk and read, right? I read and I sit at my desk. So when people come over, like, oh, that's a toolbox, I'm like, yeah, look, I use it. <laughs> and I'm not going to race you. <laughs> Beat up. I don't treat nice things that way, right? Being kind, deferring. Not using your power or position or whatever you have to leverage it over, but using all of anything God gives you and you might use to really put it under and to serve. Because why? The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. This is what he's calling these husbands to do. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman. Why? Because you're heirs. You're you're equals. And what? This this other thing is interesting, right? So that your prayers might not be hindered. What's he after there? There's a tendency. You pick it up as you read the Bible. Uh, It's really prominent. My favorite example is in Ezekiel. In Ezekiel, uh, the people of God have been running around. They've been doing the pretend God thing. You know, they've been doing the, 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 uh, the cultists of the society around them for whatever reason, for their parties or whatever, their hedonism. And then an army shows up. And they say, well, I mean, we had good parties at the pretend God temple, um, but that's an army, and pretend gods can't help us with armies. Let's go talk to the God of the Bible, because he's pretty good at crushing armies. And they show up, and they say, let's find a prophet. And they find Ezekiel, and they say, we need to talk to God, Ezekiel. Because there's a big, scary army coming, and we don't, you know, Baal has good parties, but he's not very good. His parties are awesome, though. What happens when Ezekiel goes to God with it? This is in chapter 17. Ezekiel says, hey, God, the the elders of town, they've been partying with Baal, but now they're here, and they they want a favor. Armies are coming, and we're all going to die, by the way, God. God knows because he's God. Um, And God says to them, you go tell them the only thing we have to deal with is idolatry. I don't care about the armies. I care about their hearts. We're going to deal with the parties before we deal with the armies. Because God's not just the -the jack-in-the-box. Now, he's so gracious to us. You know, when we shipwrecked everything and we cry out to him and help. he does reach down and get us. But in this case, he wants to deal with them first. I think the same thing is true here. If a husband is being overbearing and and rude and unkind to his wife and ungracious to his wife and not caring for his wife and not putting his wife first and not putting himself last and putting PlayStation first. Do people still play PlayStation? Is that still a thing? Micro Machines, PlayStation? The old PS1? PS4, PS4, thank you. (laughs) PS4. last one I touched was a 2. If you have a PS4... Four, that's fine I'm just saying the PS4 doesn't come out of your wife play PS4 together for all I care I don't know, I'm just throwing it out there I think what this means here, I think this is what he's after this is what I have to say, I think because this is a confusing verse right? So you, you, you need to notice that when I or anybody else says this, when you get to a verse like that it's good to say, I think this is what's happening here because you read the commentaries everyone's a little bit confused, but I think what's happening here because what this means is this is the experience. You go to God and you say, God, I, I really need a new job. Can I get a new, get a new job? I want to talk to you about how you're treating your wife. Well, I want a new job. I want to talk to you about my daughter. Because <laughs> if you belong to God, your son or daughter. You might be afraid of your in-laws. I am. Grandpa Jerry is awesome. Don't want to cross Grandpa Jerry. I'm running out of time, but I have a great story about that, in fact. Not me crossing it, but just knowing not to. (laughs) I digress. My thing's beeping, so I have to close it down. I'll I'll tell you. (laughs) So I go in and ask Grandpa Jerry if I can marry my wife now, and I look up and there's an old Whatcom County Sheriff's store that's been pounded flat and just has what looks like machine gun holes on the side of it. I have no idea how they got there, but I knew in that moment I need to take care of his daughter. (laughs) So, and yet, my wife, husbands, your wives, belong to Jesus. God the Father is their father. Grandpa Jerry's tough, but he's not that tough. Right? You need to remember that. You're accountable to him for how you treat your wife and care for her and love her and are gentle with her and kind to her and pour into her and help her thrive in the gospel. And we do that in response to what? The cross. The cross. And what we need to see in all this is the cross flips everything on its head. Flips society on its head. Flips relationships on its head. Flips how we deal with injustice as it's being perpetuated and perpetrated against us. How we deal with all these things change in the cross. And if you do not know Jesus, this is what you need to know about how the cross flips things on its head. Karma, world religions, all these things say you need to be good so that you can get to God. You need to be kind to people so good things will happen to you. And with karma, that means that you are actually being kind to you and not to them. I found this magical power today. Look at that. It's like I'm shouting, but I'm just talking with my hands and it makes it project. Karma is you being nice to you. I'm going to be kind to someone so good things will happen to me. You don't care about them. Maybe you care about them a little bit, but you care about yourself more. Every world religion says, this is what you have to do to get right with God. Show up and wear your Sunday best and be nice to people, be kind to people, cross the list, do these things. The cross of Jesus Christ flips all those things on the head. The reality is you're an enemy of God. You have perpetuated sin and rebellion against Him and He came and died for you so that you could be made right with Him. You are a sinner saved by grace if you are a Christian, which means you can extend grace and kindness to others. And this reality should make us nothing but the most humble, kind, service-oriented, other-centered people on the planet, right? And if you don't know Jesus, this is the reality of Christianity. God himself entered into human history and died in your place where you deserve to die so that you can live. And there's nothing you can do to earn it. You receive it. You take this gift from him now. You can't come back next week and have your Sunday best on and do this, that, or the other. It's that right now, right here, you turn to him and say, I am your enemy and I am sorry. Save me, Lord. Save me. And you know what he does? He saves you. All who call upon my name. Pardon me. He says, all who call on his name will not be put to shame. will will be put to shame. you will be received right now by the Lord Jesus Christ, forgiven for all your sins and made to live. Reach out and receive it. Take it. It's a gift. We're going to transition to communion where we remember his body broken and blood shed for our sins. We, we, we do this every week. And the reason we do this every week is because we need this remembrance. He said, do this in remembrance of me. So this is his body broken. This bread represents his body broken. And this juice and this wine represent his blood shed for us and for our sins. That we are made right. And that together as the church, as the people of God, as we take the gluten-free on the far side, the regular bread, the juice of the wine, and we dip it in the cup, we are proclaiming his death, burial, and resurrection for us. And so as Paul urged us, we consider our sin in our place. We consider how we've turned from him and loved ourselves and put ourselves in the center. But when we stand up, we stand up to take this cup and to sing and to celebrate because we are blood-bought sinner saints made right with God, not because of what he's done, but because of that man's cross. And so when you're ready, when you've done your business with the Lord, we stand up and we take of this cup and we take of it together, proclaiming in celebration his body broken and blood shed so that we could live. We do this for his glory. We do this for our joy. He is so gracious to us. I'm going to pray for us. Jesus, Jesus, I deserve none of your love. I deserve none of your kindness. In and of myself, I'm not worthy to stand up here and preach this beautiful truth about who you are, the ways you challenge this world, the way you challenge us. And yet I get to stand here. I get to stand here as a blood-bought sinner saint. I get to, by the power of the Holy Spirit, live a life pleasing to You. I get to live my life enjoying You and glorifying You and knowing You. And so I just pray for us, whatever we're dealing with, whatever's happening in our life right now, Lord God, that we lived in the wake of the cross. That whatever sins are being perpetuated against us, Lord God, that we would forgive as we've been forgiven. Wherever we feel ourselves being rejected, we we would know that though we might be rejected, we're accepted by You. And we wouldn't be afraid to do the kingdom work of proclaiming the truth of Your body broken and blood shed for the remission of sins. Because we know that even if we're rejected for that message or the truth of Your Word, we're accepted by You. and, And ultimately, it's not we that are being rejected, but You. So I pray for our city and I pray for our lives that we just embody the cross and embody the truth and embody the reality of your blood and that we live to praise your glorious name. Jesus, help us to enjoy you, to know you, and to know how much we have in you. Jesus, we love you and pray these things for your glory and for our joy. In your name, Jesus Christ, amen.